Hey there, and welcome to Jeff Does Vegas 2023 in review. As the year comes to an end, I've decided to take a little trip back in time and reshare some of my favorite conversations from the last 12 months of the podcast. For the third installment of 2023 in review, I'm doing something a little different and revisiting chats I've had with guests that aren't necessarily specifically Vegas, but could still be tied into Las Vegas. Does that make sense? If it doesn't right now, it soon will. We talked sports economics, cybersecurity, top secret airlines, and so much more. Enjoy. I generally try to keep things pretty light on the podcast and stay away from topics that people might consider serious or controversial. But if I spot an issue that I think my listeners need to know about, I go for it. And that's how I ended up talking about human trafficking on this podcast. Back in episode number 153, I had a conversation with Amy Marie Merrill. Amy is the executive director of The Cupcake Girls, a nonprofit organization that works with victims of human trafficking and sex trafficking. One of the facts that Amy shared with me during our conversation was where Las Vegas and the state of Nevada fall in the ranking of rates of trafficking in the U.S., as well as the type of trafficking that's most prominent in the state. The state of Nevada itself is very highly ranked for trafficking, period, whether it's uh, labor trafficking, sex trafficking. Um, The majority of trafficking in the state of Nevada is labor trafficking. And so that's people who are brought into the state with um, the understanding that they're going to be given a job. I was just talking to somebody who was um, working as a nanny for a family for a really, really long time, and they were entrapped in that service. And it was in Summerlin. Um, This person, they thought that, um, you know, they were moving here to take a job. They came here from um, Mexico. They had their green card. And then as soon as they got to that nannying service, it, the uh, family actually took all of her identification and said, if you say anything, we're going to report you and you're going to be sent back to Mexico, where her family has been struggling with cartel violence for some time. Um, and so the the issue of labor trafficking is huge. And it's not just within nanny services. We see it a lot within maid services. We see it a lot within the security services. We see it a lot within agriculture, right? So labor trafficking is actually the vast majority of trafficking, not only in Nevada, but in the United States. And then there's about 5% of trafficking in the United States that is sex trafficking. And then when we're talking about sex trafficking, we're talking about people who are being forced, coerced, or manipulated into essentially their bodies being used for sex. Um, The majority of sex trafficking is actually parents, families, aunties, uncles, grandmas, grandpas um, that are trafficking their own kiddos in their families for sex. Um, So that is the vast majority of trafficking that we see in Nevada. What kind of a role does Las Vegas being such a a transient city and such a tourism heavy city play in the level of trafficking within the city? Yeah. So it's hard because the majority of folks that I hear that are being um, trafficked on the strip um, or that have been trafficked on the strip, they do talk about, um, you know, being forced into these situations um, 
by their pimp into the hands of tourists and people that really wouldn't know any better. And usually what the pimp will do is they will send in um, somebody who's being trafficked. They'll send them in and they'll also have them like steal from them. So steal um, watches or money or things like that. Um, and then give everything back to their pimp. Um, so I think that because it is like a tourism heavy city, it's harder as a tourist coming into a situation like that to know, uh, oh, hey, like this is what might happen and this is what to be looking out for. But also it's a tourism heavy city. And so we have a lot of people that are in sex work. Um, so we have a lot of people that are working inside the casinos, working the hotels, working the strip um, and trying to make money for themselves and their families. And so I think that it can be hard to understand how much trafficking is going on and how much of this is consensual work because sex work is criminalized, um, which is why I'm. we've been pushing for quite some time at the Cupcake Girls um, because sex workers have been pushing for this for quite some time to decriminalize sex work so that we would have a really clear understanding of who is being forced and coerced into this and who isn't. Because then we could open up channels of sex workers feeling comfortable to go to the police and say, hey, you know, this happened to me. I was assaulted on the job. Help me out. Um, but it also gives the pimps less leeway to say um, to the people that are being trafficked, hey, if you say anything, I'm just going to get you arrested. And, you know, I have no felonies. They're just going to arrest you. You'll be put in jail forever. That kind of a thing. So it gives the ability for folks to talk about it. We do not have clear data on how much trafficking is going on in Las Vegas. We don't have clear data on how much sex work is going on in Las Vegas. Um, we've been trying to figure out how to compile that. But because sex work and sex trafficking are conflated underneath the law, um, it makes it nearly impossible to, to um, get clear data on that. And I would imagine, too, that Vegas being, again, such a tourist-heavy city where, mm -hmm. as you say, consensual sex work is going on at the same time as the, the sex trafficking, it would be a lot harder to sort of split those two and figure out a, a level of trafficking in a city like Las Vegas as opposed to a, quote-unquote, normal city that isn't right. quite so tourism-heavy. Right. I mean, we've even seen, like... um Data has been clear for years that like the Super Bowl and like these big events, so they actually don't bring in more sex trafficking. They don't. But what they do is they do bring in more sex workers and then there are more stings. Um, and once those sex workers are arrested, they're always arrested on solicitation charges, not on human trafficking charges. And so this myth of like sex trafficking being increased during these big events that directly comes out of sex work being criminalized. Um, and so I think that like once it is decriminalized, we're going to have a clear idea of how much trafficking is going on. And we're going to be able to clearly defeat um, trafficking because we'll be able to define it clearly. But we can't defeat what we're unwilling to define. And so until we um, decriminalize sex work, I don't think that we're going to ever get a clear picture of what's actually going on in Vegas. According to the latest stats, approximately 2% of the world's population uses a wheelchair to get around, and nearly 20% of people have a disability of some sort that limits one or more activities of their daily living. 
If you apply that math to Las Vegas, that means roughly 840,000 wheelchair users and almost 8.5 million people with different levels of accessibility requirements travel to Las Vegas every single year. I'm a member of a lot of different Vegas-related Facebook groups, and I often see questions from people who are apprehensive about visiting Vegas due to the perception that the city isn't very accessible or wheelchair-friendly. I wanted to bust that myth, so I reached out to an expert on the subject of wheelchair travel. Back on episode number 139, I was joined by John Morris, who's the founder and creator of wheelchairtravel.org, a website and blog where he shares his own experiences of traveling as a wheelchair user. And like me, John is also a frequent Vegas visitor. In addition to discussing some of his favorite Vegas spots and talking about the accessibility level of Las Vegas, which by the way, he's actually quite impressed with, John shared his thoughts on how airlines are doing in dealing with their wheelchair using passengers and what wheelchair travelers can do to make their journeys go smoothly. Well, I think the short of it is that they're doing poorly. Um, you know, it's sad to say I'm an aviation geek. I love to fly, um, but I'm very much an outsider in the disability community in that despite all the challenges, I still love to fly. Um, there are um, a significant range of challenges that, that travelers are facing um, when they arrive at the airport. Um, everything from wheelchair assistance not being available, missed connections due to the lack of that assistance, uh, delays in getting on and off the aircraft. Uh, and then something that I'm pretty familiar with is uh, damage to personal mobility devices. Uh, in, in 2022, my power wheelchair was destroyed twice. So um, that obviously is a a very significant issue that that needs more attention on the part of air carriers um, so that, you know, disabled folks can have a stress-free journey. Um, that's, that's the goal, I think, um, that really needs to be accomplished. What do you think airlines could be doing better? Well, I think one of the challenges that we're seeing right now um, has a lot to do with staffing in this post-pandemic period. Um, we know that uh, demand for air transportation, uh, particularly domestic air transportation, um, rebounded a lot more quickly than I think airlines uh, imagined. And uh, there are definitely staffing issues, uh, uh, limited limited staff unable to, to rise to meet the demand uh, for assistance that disabled travelers have. Um, obviously, safe handling of mobility equipment is really crucial. Um, that's a win-win situation if that problem can be solved. Um, it reduces the liability on air carriers and prevents major life disruptions for disabled people who rely on wheelchairs and other forms of mobility equipment for their independence. Um, and I think a long-term goal uh, that I hope will be more shorter term is uh, finding a way to get a wheelchair space on the aircraft. Um, you know, I can take my wheelchair on a city bus, on a train, in a taxi, and I think that that same possibility uh, should ex exist within the uh, air travel realm. You mentioned that you've traveled and you've flown all over the world. 
How are U.S. carriers doing compared to other airlines elsewhere in the world? Do you find they're better or are they worse? Well, I, I think it depends on the day, to be honest. Um, any, any airport around the world can have a bad day. Um, any airline can fail a customer. Um, there is one advantage that I think um, U.S. air travelers have. Um, over their international counterparts. And that's the fact that U.S. carriers, by virtue of our laws and regulations here in the USA, um, are responsible for the entirety of the assistance journey. And so uh, the buck really stops uh, with the carrier you fly um, rather than the airport authority or any number of contractors as is the case in Europe and around the world. Um, I think it's really important for disabled travelers to be able to point the finger at the person or the, the company that is responsible for their negative experience. And that hopefully makes it easier to remediate the issues. If someone is a first-time traveler, um, flying with a wheelchair, traveling as a, a disabled passenger, or maybe they're uh, an infrequent traveler, or they haven't traveled uh, in, in quite some time. Um, what can a person do to alleviate some of the stress involved with that, that whole travel situation? Well, I think back to my very first flight as a wheelchair user, and um, I had questions that I think most travelers aren't asking. You know, I mentioned before, I'm an aviation geek. I love airplanes. Um, I read books about them. I know a lot more than the average Joe. Um, and one of the questions that I had very early on is, well, what are the actual dimensions of the cargo hold? You know, I have this really big power wheelchair. How am I going to fit that on the airplane? Um, and so, you know, I researched what the what the dimensions were and realized that I would need to make some modifications to my wheelchair so that I could ensure it would fit inside. Um, that's a question that most people are not asking. And so I think that, you know, one of the real keys is notifying the airline um, as far in advance as possible of all the types of assistance you'll need. Um, if you're bringing a power wheelchair like mine, share the dimensions of it. Make sure that it will fit on the aircraft so that you won't have any issues um, either with being able to fly at all or uh, with potential damage to your mobility device. Um, and ensuring that, obviously, uh, you, you, you turn up at the airport in time uh, to avail yourself of all the assistance services um, that are available. Um, things can go wrong. Things get delayed. Um, I've documented that very well over the years. Um, but the key is making sure that you have a buffer of time um, to, to, to account for any delays that may occur uh, throughout the process. Located roughly 85 miles northwest of the Las Vegas Strip is what might be the most famous classified military installation in the world, Area 51. Now, if you believe what you see in pop culture, 
Area 51 is the secret base where the U.S. government stores dead alien beings in their spacecraft and where they work on advanced technology like weather control, time travel, and teleportation. But what really happens there? On episode number 142 of the podcast, I had a guest join me who was able to shed some light on the subject. Sort of. Dr. Joseph Fitzanakis is a professor of intelligence and security studies at Coastal Carolina University. He's also the program manager for the partnership between the university and the National Security Agency, which you may know better as the NSA. Now, in addition to discussing the alleged goings-on at the base, Dr. Fitzanakis and I went in-depth on the top-secret airline that shuttles thousands of workers between their homes in Las Vegas and Area 51. What we refer to as Janet Airlines is essentially a, a sort of a, a small fleet of passenger uh, aircraft uh, that are actually operated by a private contractor that is uh, hired by the United States Air Force. Because remember, the whole site belongs to the U.S. Air Force, um, which means what? It means that all personnel and all uh, pilots who work for Janet Airlines uh, possess uh, top security clearances. So they've been cleared uh, to work with, uh, on this project without uh, revealing information to those who have no need to know about this. And what Janet Airlines does is it connects um, with Area 51 uh, most of what uh, the, the personnel that need to work there. So most of what Janet Airlines does uh, is transport personnel uh, actually from a single airport, the Harry Reid International Airport in Las Vegas. Those of us who have been to Las Vegas, chances are that, and we flew there, that's the airport that we use. Uh, but it has a separate uh, location that is associated with uh, Area 51, and that's the place where Janet Airlines uh, flights uh, uh, take off uh, to go to the Nevada National Security Site. And that is a broader uh, land, piece of land that includes uh, Area 51. It seems so weird to me that a a top secret government program with such a high level of security would pick a public international airport as the the hub, the transportation hub for their employees. I mean, why not pick um, North Las Vegas Airport or why not operate out of Nellis Air Force Base, which isn't that far away? Is it, I, I mean, what would be the reasoning behind picking this? Would it just be a case of hiding it in plain sight so it, it just kind of, uh, pardon the pun, flies under the radar and nobody really thinks about it? Or, or I mean, I mean, what would be the reason for picking somewhere like Harry Reid International Airport where 42 million people fly in and out of every year? Um, I, there's probably several reasons. I think the most obvious one is that <clears throat> I would imagine, and this is just pure speculation on my end, that uh, the passengers that are being transported to and from uh, Area 51 are not necessarily military personnel. I mean, they could be civilians. Just because the site is military doesn't mean those who work there are military personnel. So, um, in fact, I would guess that given the the sort of the precise um, uh, research that happens or the particular research that happens in Area 51, most people who work there are actually civilians. 
uh, scientists and what have you, um, either working for the Pentagon. So you can ha- you can be a civilian working for the Pentagon uh, or working for an intelligence agency like the CIA, which is a civilian intelligence agency, not a military intelligence agency. So it wouldn't make sense to have these people enter, having to enter every single day a military base and then fly out from there and then come back to a military base and check out a military base. That's logistically very, very difficult. Just have them drive to a civilian airport, just like anybody else. And then just because you know that they're flying from there does not mean that they'll tell you what they do because they all have top secret clearances. They've all been polygraphed. So the chance of you learning something about what they do is absolute zero. So I think that's the reason why you see that kind of contradiction, or at least it doesn't make sense when you look at this from a sort of a, a, a lay person's point of view, does it? Offhand, um, do you have any idea how many people uh, Janet Airlines carries on a daily basis? Yeah, I, I think I, it's not, that's probably one of the easiest questions you've asked me uh, today, uh, because there are actually uh, folks who kind of monitor the flights as hobbyists, you know, and you can actually tell by the size of the aircraft and how many flights come back, go back and forth every single day how many people are transported, right? So I think the, the numbers that's floating out there is about 1,200, uh, which is probably a low estimate, I would think, but that's somewhat realistic, I would think. Now, my understanding is that Janet Airlines is just point A to point B, um, uh, Harry Reid International Airport to Area 51 and back. They don't operate to um, any other bases or facilities, do they? No, that's it. They have one job. They have one job, right? And it must be kind of boring, by the way, for the pilots uh, and the the, uh, the personnel that work on the planes because they do one, they want one, uh, one flight, one stop, one airport, by well, two airports, and that's it. So, how does one go about getting hired on as flight crew with Janet Airlines? I'm assuming it's not like getting hired on with United or Delta or Southwest or or any other uh, quote unquote normal airline that that operates anywhere in the world. It is not. First of all, you must be a U.S. citizen. Uh, second, you have to apply not through the Air Force, but through a company called AECOM, A-E-C-O-M, which is uh, actually the most wealthy company you've never heard of. Uh, AECOM is actually a Fortune 500 company. Uh, you must then, uh, for, of course, be selected to proceed to the next stage, which is an interview, a psychological evaluation, then a single scope background investigation, which, by the way, includes a polygraph examination. Uh, and then once you pass that, that's when you become eligible to, to obtain a top secret uh, security clearance, right? So, by the way, and that means, uh, you know, for those of us who are in the kind of business, that means that almost certainly, and given that this is a uh, Pentagon uh, contractor, your security investigation will be conducted by the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, which is a Pentagon uh, kind of uh, agency uh, that uh, is in charge of monitoring the backgrounds of applicants for uh, top secret and secret security positions. And you know, these are this is not particularly you know unusual. These are the kind of folks I talk to every day because of my students who get hired in the intelligence community. So they're they're, they're you know. Uh, they will be the ones that are doing the uh, back investigation for those who work in Janet Airlines. 
In recent years, professional sports has grown into a massive global industry that contributes hundreds of millions of dollars to the economy. As such, it should really come as no surprise to anyone that Las Vegas wants to get a piece of that action. And according to proponents, the impact pro sports can have on a community goes well beyond what happens on the field or on the rink. Job creation, tax revenue, and increased tourism are all often cited as being big benefits to hosting huge events or being home to a major league franchise. But just how real are these impacts? My guest on episode number 158 of the podcast joined me to help answer that question. Victor Matheson is a professor of economics and accounting specializing in sports economics at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. One of the things I wanted to get his thoughts on was governments, both on a local and state or provincial level, handing over big bucks to team owners to help finance the construction of new stadiums, as was the case with the Las Vegas Raiders Allegiant Stadium and in the current discussions surrounding the Oakland A's relocation to Las Vegas. So my opinion on this is that it is purely corporate welfare for billionaire owners and millionaire players. There's absolutely no reason that the public should be handing over taxpayer money to people who can afford to do this on your own. And we can see it right in Vegas, right? Uh, we have a hockey team in a 100% privately financed facility. There's no reason that these folks can't do this. But of course, why would you do this if there's politicians uh, bending over backwards to do to do that? And especially politicians who should know better. Again, Sheldon Adelson, uh, one of the leading contributors to conservative causes in the United States, uh, just behind uh, the Koch brothers. Uh, you know, he's a big uh, uh, casino magnet in Vegas. Uh, always saying about how we should get government out of the people's pockets and get government out of people's lives. He was the leading cheerleader for giving away $750 million to the NFL stadium because, of course, he thought that he was going to benefit a lot with uh, tourists coming in and staying at his casinos and his hotels. Okay, That's terrible, terrible public policy, and it's wild hypocrisy. He's like, well, look, uh, corporate welfare, government's terrible when it's helping other people. But if it's giving me money, I'm totally in favor of that. And that's uh, that's the worst sort of politician out of there. It's really bad policy when it comes to the A's. The A's are desperately trying to find some place to play because they uh, they burned all their bridges in Vegas or in, in, in Oakland, which means that they don't have any other options. They need Vegas a lot more than Vegas needs the A's. And if you're any sort of reasonable business person, you should be squeezing every dollar out of the A's that you can because the A's have to go somewhere and they're willing to pay it. Instead, you have the world's worst gamblers, right? The world's worst poker players in the, in the, in the Nevada state legislature of all places. Um, playing poker with like, you know, they've got a royal flush and they're still losing the hand. There's just no reason for them to uh, be handing out any money there. And of course, you know, my, it's my opinion related to billionaire owners and millionaire players. But what's not my opinion and what's actually fact is that now about three decades worth of economic research on this is that professional sports teams, uh, sports uh, uh, ma major events, um, franchises, new arenas, new stadiums uh, have little or no economic impact uh, on local economies. 
again, for the sort of reasons we've talked about, you know, substitution effect where they just shuffle around money, substitution, uh, you know, a crowding out effect where one type of tourist is crowded out for another type of tourist. Uh, leakages, and this is where money is spent in a city but doesn't stick in a city. Uh, so for think about the NBA, right? So, so you know, think about an NBA team in 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 Denver, right? Uh, you know, Joker uh, doesn't doesn't live year round in Denver. You know, they pay him forty million dollars, but uh, this is Denver money going into the pocket of this NBA player, and then that player leaves and goes back to Serbia and spends his money there, right? So this is money that not, doesn't stick. If instead you're a Denver resident and you spend money in a local restaurant, you spend it in one of the local breweries, you spend it in this great new Mexican restaurant, thanks to South Park that's coming back, Casa Bonita. Uh, you spend it there. This is uh, money that is sticking in the Denver economy and gets recirculated in the economy. Instead, Denver people spend money on the Nuggets. A huge amount of that ticket price goes directly into the pocket of Jokic, who was a marvelous player, but he's not a Denver resident. And not only does the money not even initially go to a Colorado resident, it never goes to a Colorado resident, and that Colorado, that non-Colorado resident spends almost none of that money locally. That's basically like the circus coming to town, su- sucking up all the money and leaving town with it. That's not good for the local economy. Again, fantastic for civic pride. And I mean, I grew up in Denver, so it was awesome to see the Nuggets finally win uh, a championship. But in terms of dollars and cents, it's not great at all. That's always the argument that gets made. And I look at something like an event like, say, Formula One, for example, coming into Las Vegas, and, and they have spent some serious money in the city, they bought property and they're building a giant facility that's, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. But now, I mean, Formula One is one of the richest sports leagues in the world and is now coming after the city for $40 million to cover the cost of repaving. And the argument being made there, of course, is, well, Formula One's expected to bring a billion and a half dollars into the city over the course of this weekend. And we've made this 10 year commitment. I mean, is that realistic even? When you actually look at data, looking back at actual data rather than making projections about what's going to happen, look back at actually what did happen. Uh, the best estimate you can uh, you can do and, and what I generally tell people, take whatever the league or the team or the or the boosters are saying, move the decimal place one place to the left, and that'll be a pretty good estimate about what actually is going to happen. Really? That that poor yeah. So, I mean, and we've looked at this a ton of times, right? Uh, so we looked at the Super Bowl. Super Bowl, they t- typically come in with numbers somewhere between 400 and 800 million dollars in economic impact. I don't know what they're saying for Vegas, but it'll be probably even bigger than that when, uh, when they come through with actual numbers. Uh, but when you actually look for spikes in economic activity in actual data like GDP or taxable sales or hotel receipts or tourist numbers or employment or any of these sort of things that should be reflecting hundreds of millions of dollars pouring into the economy. And we don't get that. Uh, so we get numbers somewhere between 30 and $130 million in boost coming in from the Super Bowl. So again, it's not something you should turn down. Um, but it's also not, uh, in, in the case, if it really is only $30 million, it doesn't even cover the, the level of the subsidy that the uh, NFL is asking for here. Uh, and it's certainly a fraction of what is being claimed. In 
In mid-September of this year, news began trickling out that MGM Resorts in Las Vegas was experiencing, as they put it, a cybersecurity issue. However, they claimed that they were taking steps to minimize the impact and that their facilities were operational. But on social media, it was a totally different story. Guests at several MGM properties were sharing reports of major issues, including slot machines being down, room keys and locks failing, elevators not functioning, and hours-long lineups waiting to be manually checked in. In the end, this issue ended up costing MGM Resorts an estimated $100 million. But what happened? How did it all go down? And can future attacks like this be prevented? Back on episode number 170 of the podcast, I was joined by FC, aka Freaky Clown. He's an ethical hacker and security expert who spent the last 30 years helping thousands of organizations advance their security, both cyber and physical. One of the things FC and I talked about during our conversation was social engineering and how it was used by these hackers to create complete and utter chaos. Social engineering is convincing people to do things that they probably wouldn't normally do, right? And we do this all the time in our lives, right? Like, you know, whether or not it's, you know, the kid wants a, a candy bar and is screaming, right? So they they cry until they get the candy bar, right? Or maybe it's a, a sales, a massively bad for it, right? So sales are trying to sell you on this idea that if you buy this car, you're going to get the beautiful women, you're going to live an amazing life, but all you have to do is buy this car or maybe the next one up. Um, you know, social engineering is pushing people and they're into, into things that they probably wouldn't do, right? And how we do that in sort of the hacking side is I convince people to open a door for me or I convince them to help me, you know, steal some computers from their own company. With the MGM thing, the group that did it, a group called Sacred Spider, they actually released a, a sort of a press release. This is kind of getting a bit more normal now um, for groups. They sort of like to brag about these things. They released a press release on how they did it, which isn't unusual, but you know, it may sound unusual to the, the average viewer. Um, and what they said was they basically social engineered their way into the MGM systems. What this involved was what we call open source intelligence, right? So this is looking on the internet, basically, and browsing around places like LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook and finding as much information about a company as you can, and especially their employees. So what Sacred Spider did in this case was they found employees of a specific job site on LinkedIn, right? Because everyone has their jobs on there, right? Everyone can be found. Um, so they found these people. And what they did was they phoned up the MGM IT help desk system, um, which they'd found from other open source intelligence um, systems. And so they basically pretended to be this person. So they impersonated this person and convinced via social engineering, the IT help desk to give them access to an account. Once they had access to that account, they could then get in, start looking at the systems internally, and then start doing what we call the initial recon of um, that network and seeing where things should go. And then they just dropped in some ransomware, and that's it. So it's incredibly easy to do, and that, that really harks back to that, that education piece. Their IT help desk should 
absolutely not have given any access to anyone um, because there are methods to verify that you're talking to the right person. Um, so it comes down to that education piece. If that IT help desk user had been educated in the correct way, was aware of those types of attacks, it probably wouldn't have cost $100 million. That's incredible. So, I mean, how can a person or both on, a, on an individual and on a business level avoid getting sucked in by one of these social engineering things? As you say, is it really just education and making sure that the person on the other end of the phone is is or on the other end of the chat is asking the right questions and just making sure that they're somewhat knowledgeable of the other person? How do you how do you avoid this? So the, the first thing, uh, I'm actually going to quote my wife here, right? She says, like, the right fish at the wrong time will always catch anyone, right? So if you're thinking about phishing scams, we, it's, we're not just talking about emails that come in, right? The ones from the Nigerian prince that wants to give you all the money. They're beyond that now. They're, they're very sophisticated. They work on a lot of psychology, a lot of emotional triggers. Um, but we're also seeing it over, like, you know, WhatsApp and, and social media, any means of communication, we see these these attempts of social engineering. And what she says to look out for is if someone is asking you to do something, like click on something or, or you know, download something, that's a red flag. If it causes you an emotional response, right? Does it make you feel happy, right? Because happy is a good one. We want to we wanna be liked, um, you know, or if it makes you feel angry or upset. Or if there's a time pressure, if they're saying like, you know, oh, it's got to be done now, right? Um, they use a lot better wording than I do, right? They're really, really good at this. Criminals are phenomenally good at doing this because they do it day in, day out, right? And they know how to manipulate people. So if there's a time pressure, if they're asking you to do something and if it makes you feel something, then, then they're red flags. And so... What you have to do is verify it in a completely different way, right? So if you've got a text message or if you've got a, a voicemail or some email, use a different method to contact the original source and say, hey, did you send this email? Did you send this text? Because I'm, I'm suspicious of it. And to be honest, a lot of the emails that I write sound like phishing emails because <laughs> um, I'm not very good at them. Um, so uh, it, it could always be genuine, but it's better to just take a couple of seconds, just a minute to figure it out and figure out if it is real than, you know, transfer $250 million. Like, you know, we, we've seen that with our clients where they just give out money and because the, the attackers have, moved their way of thinking from what we call a Spock way of thinking, type one thinking, which is where you're calm and collected and you know, emotionless to Homer way of speak, uh, thinking, which is like, you know, impulsive and you're not really thinking and you just want to get the job done or they've, they've manipulated you into some way of like, ah, oh, I, I, I'm being asked by my boss to, to transfer this money. And you know, it's, it's, it's easy to do. You do it thousands of times a day, like flicking between these you know, impulsive, I want to eat this donut versus that I shouldn't eat this donut because now I've got to go to the gym. Um, everyone's susceptible to it. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, Trek Back in Time. And I hope you enjoyed revisiting some of these conversations I've had on topics tangentially related to Las Vegas. 
If you want to check out the complete episodes, you can find the links in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com or search them out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. 